0: Welcome to another episode of seize the moment podcast and today we have a very special guest today we have angus fletcher he's a professor of story science at ohio state's project narrative, the world's leading academic think tank for the study of stories, he has dual degrees in neuroscience and literature received his PhD from Yale uh, taught Shakespeare at Stanford and has published two books and dozens of peer reviewed academic articles on the scientific workings of novels poetry, film, and theater. His research has been supported by the National Science Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. He has done story consulting for projects for Sony, Disney, the BBC, Amazon, PBS, and Universal, and is the author-presenter of the Audible Great Courses Guide to Screenwriting. Today, we'll be discussing his new book, uh, Wonderworks, the 25 most powerful inventions in the history of literature. Welcome, Angus.
1: I
2: am delighted to be here.
1: Yeah, man, was so, Yeah, when, uh, when Ryan reached out to us to have you on, I just want to give this quick little backstory before we start, because I thought it was kind of funny, right? Mm-hmm. So Ryan sends us this email, and as I'm reading it, he's like, oh, here's who Angus Fletcher is. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, yeah, I know who Angus Fletcher yeah. is. Does he know who we are?
2: <laughs> well, As it happens, I do know who you guys are, and I was honored and flattered to be invited on because you guys are helping me and helping other people kind of figure out this beast, which I don't understand, which is business.
1: Yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I mean, Ryan has definitely shout out to Ryan Stelzer because he's the guy to go to for that. Uh, Okay, so now to begin the podcast, right? So, you know, as for me and my background as a therapist, and I think even, you know, kind of for Alan too, and just anybody who's I think, uh, who dabbles in any sort of like intellectual ideas, we come across Joseph Campbell, right? And so we come across these ideas, especially if you're like into self help, uh, like, you know, personal development or whatnot, you come across the example of Joseph Campbell, Joseph Campbell, because he tells you essentially that there's this idea of, uh, of kind of the hero's journey, and it's cross-cultural, and all of these different narratives across the culture, right, pretty much share this idea among many others, right, so all of us kind of look at Joseph Campbell, and we think like, wow, this is kind of amazing, it seems like there's a sort of archetypal blueprint for what it is to be human, right, so we all get this, right, and we all think like, okay, like, this is sort of the way to be, and we know this from all of these different cultures, and it can't be it can't be a mistake or it can't be a coincidence that all of these different cultures come up with the same narratives, right? You disagree with that. How come?
2: Yeah, I do. Um, well, I disagree with it because of biology and science. Um, Joseph Campbell is a really smart, interesting guy, and um, and he did this wonderful thing, which was take story seriously, and so. And because of that, I mean, he was, he's the guy who basically made story something more than just basically a series of lies and falsehoods, which is basically what the philosophers would all kind of tell you that it is. Um, but Campbell did make a series of epic errors. Um, we can go through all those errors if you want, but the main, the main core problem is that Campbell thinks of story as something that is eternal and archetypal. Right. And story just evolved in the human brain um, as a way of making plans and plots. Story is just something we tell ourselves to help us understand our world and to say, these are the things we can do. So I tell myself a story about where I came from and I tell myself a story about what I'm gonna do today. And those stories help me come up with new ways to survive and adapt in changing environments. And so story is just a very flexible thing in the human brain. I mean, you can look around you now and you can see we're not doing the same thing that people did in the middle ages. Why? We're just telling ourselves different plans and plots. And anytime anyone comes up with a new idea for what to do today, that's the narrative machinery in their head coming up with an original plan, an original plot, an original story. So my main quibble with Joseph Campbell is that while I agree with him that story is really incredibly important and while I agree with him that story is the thing that unites humans together, I disagree that there's one story that we're all endlessly repeating I instead think that the world is full of lots of individual, unique stories. I think that different cultures tell different stories. And I think that in the future, people will will be reading books and watching movies that are very different from the books and movies that we're enjoying today.
1: Yeah, so is your perspective, essentially, that the archetypes are actually, if you could kind of call them that, right, that they're more sort of fluctuating, right? So it's sort of the neuroscientific difference of the self, as opposed to maybe the religious version of it, right, where the religious version says, okay, there's this unchanging essence, that's sort of immovable and obviously, like all pervasive and all encompassing and always existing, as opposed to like, you know, the self that we see from neuroscience, that's sort of, and, you know, psychology, too, that's always kind of evolving and adapting, meaning that essentially, if we could call it an archetype, we could say that yes, maybe as a foundation, but That's all it basically is, right? It's not eternal, and it doesn't sort of remain immovable through time and space.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, this is the core difference between religion and science, obviously. And I want to come on here and say that I don't think religion and and science are incompatible. They're just talking about different things. So religion is talking about a kind of timeless eternal. And so that's what Joseph Campbell is talking about. He's saying, um, if there is a timeless eternal story, what would that be? And that story would be out of time, out of our lives, and in some permanent forever place. But science and biology are about the temporal world, which is a world that's constantly changing, nothing ever lasts. Um, And, you know, crucially, everything is evolving, not in the sense necessarily of getting better, but of changing in response to problems and adapting. And so in science and in biology, there are actually no archetypes at all. (laughs) There's not an archetype. Um, What there are is patterns and formulas that are useful uh, for periods of time and in certain contexts. But over time, if the context changes enough, then even those formulas and patterns are eliminated. So, you know, in our particular historical period, there are certain kinds of stories or certain kinds of anything that that are useful broadly across cultures because there's a certain stability um but they're not timeless in the sense that if we could actually go up to heaven and talk with the angels we wouldn't find any of those things up there because there'll be a completely different eternal formula uh uh in in place um past the pearly gates
1: wow so with something like the hero's journey right how did that because i mean i think that's to me the sort of most most curious thing here how would the hero's journey then evolve because on the surface of it it does seem like it is cross-cultural and it is relatively similar across time too
2: Yeah. Okay. So there's a series of errors here. So first, let me talk. If you'd like, I could talk about like the origins of Campbell's ideas, and then I could talk about why they don't work. So that's kind of a two-step thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So basically, Campbell fuses together ideas from three different thinkers. Uh, This guy George Fraser, who was a kind of late 19th century Scottish comparative mythologist, Um, Carl Jung, who was kind of famous early, really mid 20th century sort of psychoanalyst, and Freud, um, who was kind of Jung's inspiration, but actually became more famous really after Jung, in in a way. Um, And so from Fraser, Fraser was this really fascinating uh, uh, Scottish classicist who, who believed that ultimately all cultures were telling the same story about a hero who sacrificed himself to rebirth the culture. And he thought that this myth, which he saw as the essence of Christianity, could be found in all these other cultures from South America to Africa to Asia. And so what he did is he basically sent out letters to people from his his study up in, in in the north of Britain. He sent out letters across the world and said, can you find me this story anywhere in any of these cultures? And this is not a good way to do research. A good way to do research is not to sit in your study and send out letters to people and ask them if they can confirm what you're already thinking is true. Um, And so, you know, a few people sent back letters and Fraser, on the basis of this, wrote a big book, you know, The the Golden Bough, um, which became a bestseller and actually got him knighted. And the reason it got knighted is it confirmed the British Empire's belief that all these other cultures were actually secretly English, because they had all in their minds kind of had this, they were all telling the same story and just England had got there first. And so it kind of allowed and enabled the British Empire to say, we're not really conquering these other places. They're just kind of, um, you know, dumber versions of us because we were smart enough to hit the finish line first. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of Fraser's idea. And famously, as you can establish independently, all of Fraser's research has been completely debunked and destroyed by modern anthropologists. It's just terribly, it's just terribly lazy scholarship. So that wasn't really right. Then, of course, we have Freud, who is a wonderfully imaginative thinker. Um, But also um, just completely out of touch with reality. And Freud's basic idea is that uh, the human brain has these dreams. And these dreams are our unconscious talking to us through a symbolic language. And that if we can interpret that symbolic language, we can figure out what's going on in our deep head and fix it. And, you know, Freudian psychology really was the dominant form of psychology through the 1960s and maybe even to the 1970s. And, and of course, there's still a lot of psychoanalysts out there today. But what people discovered is not only was there no scientific basis for this whatsoever, but it was actually causing a lot of harm to most patients by making them believe that they had all these things going in their head that they didn't actually seem to be having going on in their heads and having very complicated and elaborate explanations for stuff that turned out not to necessarily work or be helpful. And so Freud has also been just completely debunked by the scientific community. And then finally, you have Jung, and Jung kind of combines Fraser and Freud into this just really wonderfully intoxicating, um, just fantastic idea that all of us actually have the same unconscious. And that actually, when we're dreaming, we're dreaming a universal cosmic dream, and that that dream, which is shared across cultures, is this story, um, you know, similar to the story that, that that Fraser has, of a kind of journey into knowledge and into understanding. And Jung is just one of these thinkers who, he's just, he's just wonderful to read. He's the kind of person that I wish I could be in my own life, deeply imaginative, deeply caring, one all around the world. So I don't have any argument with him as a poet or as a thinker or as a philosopher is just completely unscientific and there's no evidence it whatsoever. Um, and what happened is that Joseph Campbell put all these thinkers together and he came up with the idea of the hero's journey, which is basically this idea of a person who kind of sacrifices himself metaphorically by crossing a threshold, going into our deep collective unconscious and finding the truth there and then bringing it back to share with all of us, like someone who is able to kind of go into the universal dream, kind of Jungian dream, and, and pull it out and extract meaning. And then, you know, K- uh, Campbell went around and he, in a very hard to read book, I will say, um, I don't know if any of you have ever tried to read Joseph Campbell's books, but like a lot of academic books, it's very hard to follow a lot of what's going on. Um, But basically he says, oh, well, you know, all these different myths from, you know, medieval Aquinas to he claims Eskimo parables and all this kind of stuff. They all follow the same basic story.
1: Yeah. Um, mm -hmm, Good.
2: No, I've already
1: talked enough. You go ahead and respond. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, no, so I was going to yeah talk about Young. So I've never read Campbell, but I've read a lot of Young. And then, so yeah, man, there was, uh, I don't know if you guys, I'm sure you guys have heard of it, but uh, there was a Red Book, the Red Book. It was released in, I think, 2009, something along those lines. So it was one of the most fascinating things I've ever read, incredibly obscure and just like really esoteric. But like, yeah, the way it's, what makes it so intoxicating is not just that. And I think that Young, look, I don't know if this was sort of the purpose of this, because I don't want to. Uh, sort of give him intentions that he might not necessarily have, but Young was a very good businessman in the sense of like, he produced this material that was super intoxicating, just like other new age material, because it purported to have these great secrets of the mind. So it was sort of like, you know, you know how like you would see like self-help stuff. And it's like, you know, you only use 10% of your brain, unlock the other aspects of your mind, right? right. That was kind of young. And you know, by the way, Young is actually credited with being the father of the new age movement. So Young had this sort of idea where it wasn't that it wasn't like, okay, you're only using 10% of your brain, but it was like, okay, here are like these hidden aspects of yourself that in your daily in your daily life, you don't really have access to. And with the red book, what was so fascinating about it, and apparently he didn't use any sort of intoxicants, so no hallucinogens, nothing, right? So apparently he just did this through his own imagination. And in this red book, it's like this step-by-step kind of like underworld journey as he accesses different parts of his psyche. So at first I think he met like the animal, right? His feminine side. And then he goes a little bit deeper and now he meets the shadow, right? Which is his dark side. And now going even deeper, now he confronts the self, right? Which is supposed to be the all-encompassing you know person that he is and within that self is philemon the person that he calls the wise man it's like you know this deeper like god-like being who actually religion misconstrued and it's actually you you're the god right it's not you know god out there you're you're the god right so then he meets philemon and then the book book abruptly ends and apparently there was no sort of consensus and no harmony between these characters so nobody really knows like how you kind of create this like all-encompassing self there you know that he would kind of envision so for him the self was everything it was shadow uh anima uh of, you know, Philemon the wise man and then it was like another I guess that was probably I think the self so there was two versions of the self from my memory so there was Philemon the wise man which is your authentic self and then there was the self which is globally the self so what you would have is like this really crazy and great journey which is like oh my god this makes life so meaningful so when you read Jung, you think like you know what man like maybe this is true and maybe there's an aspect of it that could kind of make me feel like not only just whole but can make me feel like my day to day and the drudgery of it like you know there's an escape from that
0: the the thing is it's it is a beautiful it, these are beautiful works yeah right, right. by young and in a sense it feels true right somebody may read this and be like i can confirm yeah something about me confirms that this feels true there's something true here so something i resonate with so that's fantastic but i i do agree with you uh that it's not scientific, right? This is not something that we've been able to uh, verify, right? So, I mean, that that's that is still a major sort of criticism that needs to be looked at because these things are so intoxicating, and uh, I, I myself am intoxicated by it for right. sure. I'm it's not gonna, I'm not free from it. I love these ideas. Uh, I've even played uh, games before with ideas of like uh, the Philemon and you're in this journey, and there's the shadow or the ego, and you're conquering yourself and And it's fantastic, it's a beautiful thing, but. Yeah, and you also appreciate Jordan Peterson's work. Sure, yeah, right, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, to me, I mean, Young is sort of just like my favorite, like uh, art rock bands from like the 1970s or 80s, you know? It's just this like amazing mind expanding experience, but I don't actually go out and think, well, this is actually true. And to your earlier point, I mean, I think the main thing that Young really answers is our desire for meaning or purpose. The sense that there's more, that there's more in ourselves, and that there's more in the world, and that is the primal function of art to open us to those possibilities. That sense that there is a beyond, and that we can find more. And in all those ways, I really admire Young, um, and you know, encourage people to read him the same way I encourage people to read Shakespeare. I mean, when you read Shakespeare, I wouldn't want you to think there's literally a dude called Hamlet. There's no guy called Hamlet, right? You know I mean? And Hamlet wasn't really a prince of Denmark. And, and, but the fact that that's, none of that's true doesn't mean it's not a wonderful thing. Right. What my own work is focused on, though, is, 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 less the, is less a search for like that one true story that will somehow alchemically release us from ourselves and result in the final apotheosis of meaning. What my own work is focused on is, actually, how can you change your own story? How can you change your own narrative? each of us has our own narrative, and that narrative is, you know, that narrative may ultimately end up intersecting with some universal narrative in some other world that I can't see, but in our here and now, that narrative is a very specific, particular thing. Each of us is trying to do unique things in our lives. Each of our days is subtly different from everyone else's days because we have different goals and objectives, and each of us is a hero in a different way because each of us has to face different obstacles and challenges in our life, and so how can you make your story more effective? How can you make your story more the way that you want it to be? And there is a ton of science, which is completely reliable and not hard to follow, that allows you to empower yourself in all those very specific and practical ways. And it's not incompatible with young. I mean, you can continue to have... A kind of a larger sense of the ultimate meaning and purpose of of your life, which exists on another plane, while at the same time saying, I'm going to shift the actual functions of my brain so that I'm telling my story faster, cleaner, and more effectively. And so that's kind of what my work is about.
1: Mm -hmm. And so can we talk about some of those tools? What are they?
2: Yeah, well, okay. So um, there's just a huge suite of them. Because basically, um, so on a basic level, all of our brains suffer from certain types of misfires. So you know, maybe we, um, maybe we suffer from grief or self-doubt or anger or even trauma. And so there's a lot of very effective stories you can tell yourself that can help you troubleshoot your brain and help you move faster through those kinds of experiences. Um, maybe you just want kind of more generally positive things in your life. Maybe you feel like you need a little more courage in your life. Um, There are stories that can help you boost your courage. Maybe you want more creativity. Maybe you want to be more of an innovator and and do more change. There are stories that you can tell yourself to to create, um, to to, to boost your powers of creativity. And the main overall thing here, um, because my expertise is something weird known as narrative cognition. The main overall thing here is that we are trained to think of stories as ways of affecting other people's behavior. So if you go to school you're trained to think of stories as a form of rhetoric or marketing or something like that and it's like oh what's the story that i can tell to make someone buy my products or elect me to office or something like that you know what's the narrative i can use to control other people the way i think about stories the opposite i think about it is self rhetoric i think about it as the stories you tell yourself to reprogram yourself and so that way it's not so much about trying to manipulate and control other lives but accessing your own potential so Really, whatever you want to do. And I I work, you know, I work with students who are, you know, in third, fourth, fifth grade um, through high school and university. I work, I do a lot of consulting for corporations. I work with U.S. Special Forces. Um, You know, I work all over the place. So whatever it is that you want to do, there's probably a story that you can tell yourself to improve
1: your performance. Yeah. And stories are really great catalysts of self-reflection and introspection too. So I remember, um, I don't know if you guys have read um, The Existential Psychotherapist. I think it's called, um, so his name is Rollo May. The book was called uh, The Cry for Myth. Uh, So uh, Angus, have you ever heard of it? Yeah, you remember, right? Yeah. 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 So, so there was this uh, great part in the cry for myth where he talked about Henrik Ibsen's pure Gynt*. And so the kind of story was about like, uh, I don't want to get into it too much, but it's about this like narcissistic guy who's kind of like consistently bemoaning his life, always miserable, right? He's like, ah, oh, you know, like women don't like me. And he's trying to like constantly get like all of these, like uh, really kind of, uh, what would you call them? Like higher status women. And then essentially the kind of moral of the story is he had this great girl at home and he was sort of discounting her. And so Rollo May writes in the book, he's like, after, you know, well, all of these different like thousands of men or whoever right have read this book right or the or they've seen the play or they read the play and they were like oh my god man how many of us are doing that shit like we're sort of self-absorbed narcissists right and but it takes something like that because you know somebody calling you out as a narcissist is often pretty hurtful and you get really defensive and you're like oh you know screw you i'm not a narcissist like you know look at yourself but then when you read something like pure Gantt you think like you know what man like maybe this is me you know and it's it doesn't feel insulting because it doesn't seem directed at you so i love of the power of literature as a form of introspection and in, in this case right not to be self-healthy self-healthy but as a form of growth and as a way of like you know to cognitively and emotionally develop
2: oh of course yeah because none of us are aware of any of our own faults but then we see them all the time in other people right and then right. over the time and you know when you see those kinds of stories or narratives on the outside it gives you that perspective on yourself and it gives you that desire to change So that's one of the big functions of stories is just to give you that desire to change because of self-awareness. But then if you actually want to change, how do you do it? I mean, you need to go beyond self-reflection to actually changing your behaviors and changing the way that your brain works. And you have to start appreciating the people you have in your life more um, and caring about them more and making all these other kinds of basic changes. And so those are the sort of things, you know, I mean, that's kind of what I go through in the book in terms of, you know, all the different kinds of Changes you can have in terms of making yourself more empathetic, or more curious, or, or or more creative, or whatever. But at the core of it, it really just comes down to realizing that your story is yours to tell. And no one else is writing your story for you. You're not inheriting some kind of story, nor is there some perfect story out there that if you just follow that story, you would be happy forever. It's your story. It's in your power to tell. And the main thing to do is just say to yourself, what do I want that story to be? And then work with yourself in the same way that you would if you were trying to run a marathon. Just start training. Start training yourself to think in that story, live in that story, be that story every day. Um, and you will immediately, once you start doing that, you'll you'll have those Peter Ginn moments where you'll notice, whoa, I'm not actually living up to my own story. I did something there, and we all have those moments where we suddenly realize we're not acting in the way that we want to act, but somehow there's something in our head that's propelling us in that direction. And then those moments of conflict give us the opportunity to back out, retell our story to ourselves, and keep moving forward in the positive direction that we want. And so that's the main kind of thing that I just say to people is. of people out there, they live their lives somewhat non-intentionally. They have their desires kind of stimulated by things outside them. They live in conflict and contradiction. They're just kind of going in five directions at the same time, Mm -hmm. you know, and they feel a sense of emptiness and they're not progressing in a single direction. And that's just because their head is a mishmash of stories that other people have told them, but you can clarify, find a single story and go with it. And, you know, if you go with it for a while and it doesn't take you where you want to go, you can reverse, tell yourself a different story and see where that leads instead.
0: So uh, I would say, I suppose then a way that I would craft my own story, let's say it's um, uh, maybe if I crafted a purpose for myself, let's say, uh, and that that purpose was meaningful enough to sort of drive me to change my behavior. Is that sort of what you're sort of alluding to. Like, uh, I would tell myself a story of maybe, maybe this is my purpose. Maybe it's not that I have to be um, doing what other people tell me to to do, what society tells me to do. Uh, In a sense, I might craft a narrative for myself where um, I I seek, like, I see this incredible meaning and that'll drive me to then change my behaviors. Yeah, Yeah.
2: So if all of us have different things we ultimately want to do, and I think we confuse what we want to do with a lot of kind of short-term things. Right. Um, but, you know, for example, some of us um, just want to give to others. We just, we want to give to others. We want to leave behind a legacy that lifts up the world. Um, and so, you know, what we always want to be telling as our, as our story is You know, my story is for you. My story is for the people around me. How can I identify what their stories are and help move those stories forward? So that's one kind of story. Another kind of story is someone who just wants to know, who just wants to understand, who's a seeker. And their story is, I need to challenge myself to always look beyond the simple, obvious answer and press and be skeptical. You know, um, there are people who just want to grow, who want to be their fullest and most complete self and the story they have to tell themselves every morning is challenge yourself. And when something bad happens, embrace it, embrace it as an obstacle, love that obstacle, see that obstacle, see the hardness of life as a gift. Thank life for being hard, have gratitude to life when it's hard, because what that is doing is helping you grow. So the key thing is to identify not what someone's specific story, like if someone says to you, if anyone ever says to me like, oh, you know, I want to like found a $500 million company. That's actually a pretty easy story. And that's a relatively easy lift. And I work with companies and corporations all the time to help them kind of figure out how to get their story working so they can do that or how they can become a media empire. The hard story is the story that actually gives you life fulfillment and life satisfaction. You'd be surprised at how many people out there have tons of money and are completely empty <laughs> and are just awash in confusion and you know divorce and drugs and all this kind of stuff because they just don't have any idea what they're doing as human beings on this planet. And so the deeper thing is to kind of find what is actually your story? What is your story? And usually every all of us have a slightly different version and you can usually find it by going back to your childhood um, looking at some of your instincts, some, some significant moments you had, um, where you just kind of felt an impulse in a particular direction. And that was kind of your kind of natural tendency coming out and just going back and rebooting that and clarifying that and moving forward with it. That's kind of a lot of the kind of psychological work that story can do.
1: Oh, wow, I love that. And then, so wow, that got me thinking of you, by the way. So uh, and we kind of have different perspectives of what podcasting is supposed to look like. So for me, it's very results-oriented, right? And I'm always comparing our podcast, like to other podcasts. And I always like, I so randomly I'll like text them and I'll text them like a podcast. I'll be like, why isn't this us? Like, why are we doing this well, right? So Alan, on the other hand, is very sort of like focused and zeroed in on what we're doing. So he will always tell me the same thing, which I love. And I have to kind of remind myself, even though most of the time I don't buy it. Um, but, but I'm sure, I guess you'll agree with it. So he'll tell me like, look, man, we have to focus on ourselves and we have to focus on the value and the contribution that we're making to the sphere, right? So when it comes to what's important, right, what's important is literally what we're doing for other people as opposed to what other people are doing, what their results are, you know, what they're getting from advertisers, uh, what their view count is, yada, yada, right? So he helps me really kind of refocus that and kind of start thinking back to what we're doing as opposed to what's happening in the world.
0: I would say, I, I think metrics are important. Mm-hmm. I think being goal oriented and process oriented is incredible incredibly important if you're trying to sort of craft a system uh like for instance like our goal as a podcast is to essentially Mm -hmm. provide knowledge about uh, i don't know nuanced thinking critical thinking uh growth mindsets uh introduce them to different thinkers experts in their fields right and sort of encourage people to sort of um not not be myopic about the role. Maybe uh, maybe maybe that other person is thinking what they're thinking for a reason. It's not necessarily that you're right and they're wrong, and you know all of that. Um, so that's a beautiful thing. Uh, on the other hand, if you want that to be successful, yes, you do have to be sort of uh, concentrating on the metrics, uh, sort of building these uh, systems, marketing, and and all that. I understand the importance of it. I just feel like anytime you become very oriented towards money metrics and this and that it takes away from the purpose of you know the authentic purpose of what you're trying to create and uh but the thing is if if also you're trying to be authentic about it of course you should authentically be trying to grow and learn about things like marketing and and aspects of that world as well too so i i kind of struggle with it but i i do try to just orient around you know what is why am i doing this what's the purpose here why am i getting up in the morning why is this my interest and and why do you know my interest is other people learning about this stuff as opposed to you know uh how well did the episode do today how many views is this going to get what's the clickbaity title? yeah that's me <laughs> yeah well actually he doesn't think actually i uh, sorry more credit to you though he did he doesn't uh he has more integrity about titles. I, I do <laughs> think that you should be a little more clickbaity with titles because you know you could have a beautiful, you know, beautiful beautiful content in an episode, but people need something to entice them to click into it, of course. So Eh, it's, it's sorry, it's like, a, I'm like yeah. a stream of consciousness. No, no,
1: here, but yeah, yeah, So, but just tying into what, what Angus was saying, right? So Alan is really good with that, right? The way he kind of considers it is less about the metrics and less about kind of, uh, uh, you know, the whatever the result may be, which I consistently focus on. And he's more so thinking about the story, right? Like, what is it that we're doing for the community? Like, what yeah. value are we providing?
2: Well, yeah. I, of course, agree with both of you equally. And I think the tension is important. And so to kind of explain how I think, I think you have to start out by knowing yourself and knowing your process and you have to build everything from yourself and your own process and not be too externally driven too early because ultimately you finding it in yourself is not only going to create something sustainable in terms of your narrative and your process, it's also going to create something unique Mm -hmm. because you're different. And if you spend too much time listening to the outside world, you're only ever going to imitate what is already happening out there. And you're never going to have that revolutionary breakout, that um, can only happen by having the courage to go inside yourself. Once you've found that radical individuality, once you've found your own process, you've found your own method, you've found your own narrative, that is the time to start looking outward, not to imitate, but to see opportunities, mm-hmm. and in particular to see opportunities to distinguish yourself And have conflict with the way that things are working now, because the reality is, I mean, I think a lot of times we get misled in this world um, because there's a lot of people out there trying to coach you to be successful. And almost all that coaching involves formulas, you know, kind of like, oh, here's the easy way to do it. Follow this. This is how everybody else does it. A formula, by the time that everyone is following a formula, forget about it. You're never going to have success. Actually, the way that, say, Jordan Peterson or or almost all the successful people I know have become successful is by having a fight in public with an existing formula. Um, And really, the way to go, and, you know, I think Peterson's a pretty authentic example of this, is to figure out exactly what you think. And maybe you're still thinking about what you think until you're like 45 or even 50. It takes you that long, but you've thought about it, and it's so consistent and so coherent that the moment that an opportunity comes up for you to have a fight that you really believe in, no matter how big that fight is, you have that fight. And if that's a big enough fight, well, you know, look out because everyone's going to know you because you're taking on on Goliath. Um, And so to me, that's the kind of two part mechanism really for success is to hone your own voice and then look out to see if you can find that area where you can productively challenge the norm. And say, you know, this is actually not the way to do it. And that will bring the heat on you. And if you have built yourself up so that you know what you're doing when the heat comes, it's like a forge and it strengthens your steel. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it basically allows you to cut through anything that might come your way.
1: Yeah. Wow. Love that, man. Uh, Yeah. And it's sort of like, it makes me think of something you said on another podcast, and it's something that we think about, and it's part of the toolkit that we use for psychotherapy, where it's like, as you're on the road to, you know, hopefully success, right? I mean, obviously that's unpredictable, but, uh, or at least, you know, relatively unpredictable. So as you're kind of on the road to that, what you should be thinking about is honing your character, right? And figuring out what's important to you in terms of the person you want to become, as opposed to whatever the external world is going to give you, you know, as a result of becoming that person, right? So I love that, right? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? about focusing on the behaviors as opposed to the results?
2: Yeah, so I mean, first of all, all of us within us psychologically have certain natural goals feelings concerns you know and that gets very muddied by the world we're we're dropped in the world as humans we're, we're social animals you know we think through other people and so it's very easy to kind of lose sense of who you are exactly as a person and to see other people having success and want to chase that success and always be kind of running one step behind um you know i mean i live at a university i don't want to talk too ill about my university but my university recently launched on this big data analytics thing um and you know, in my mind, I was just copycatting MIT, Stanford. And you know, if you look around almost every big institution out there that's not number one is chasing number one. And so what you have to do is you have to do the opposite. You have to look into yourself and you have to say, what's unique about me? What's unique about the things that I like? Um, and in particular, what if you like two things that no other person on earth thinks belong together? What if you love a particular novel and a particular kind of music and no one who loves that music likes that novel and no one who likes that novel likes that music? That's tapping into something unique in you. And all of us have this kind of uniqueness to kind of put things together. And what life is, is it's the courage to hold on to that, not in an aggressive way, not in an antagonistic way, but to just own it and find a way to be at peace like that in public. Um, you know, I mean, I'll give you an example from my own life is I don't drink. Um, I don't use any drugs, anything like that. Um, and you know, when I was younger, this was always a source of awkwardness for me. Um, because people always be like, Why not? Aren't you curious? You know, you'd go out with people and then they'd get awkward because they'd be drinking and you wouldn't be drinking and all this kind of stuff, you know what I mean? And I'm like, No, I'm actually just happy not drinking, and I don't mind if you guys are drinking or whatever, you know, you know. But it was always this thing that I was feeling self-conscious of as I was younger, and then so sometimes I wouldn't bring it up, or I would like avoid situations or whatever. And, you know, finally, I just realized over my life, like, I'm just totally at peace with this. This is just me, you know, like, I'm not saying it's right for anyone other than me, but it's just me. And I'm just going to go out in public situations and just be chill about it and calm about it. And all of us have a million different things like that. You know, there's like a rock band that we like. We don't want to admit to people or there's like anything else, you know. And I think, you know, the key to life is just accepting all those weird quirks about yourself, then finding the core thing in you that unifies all of them. Because there is something in you that's not disorganized, that's not random, that is making you stick out in all these ways. And then once you find that, just live that every day in a calm and comfortable way and encourage other people to live their own story in a calm and comfortable way. So that's kind of how I think about it. I kind of think you find yourself through what's weird to other people, you know, and then you own that weird as normal for you and you kind of make a system out of it. And then you just go into into public with it and you're not in people's spaces with it. I mean, I I never go around. I'm not the kind of person who's like, oh, you know, you shouldn't drink or you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. Um, But at the same time, you know, I mean, I'm there to celebrate other people for their uniqueness and and to kind of, you know, stand stand fast for my own.
0: Man, I love that so much. That's essentially what you did, right? Combining neuroscience and literature, right? I mean, normally people wouldn't think to combine yeah two, right? right they'd be like well how do you how do you infuse the two together yeah.
2: yeah yeah i mean this is like the root craziness of me basically i mean so basically i mean the, the thing that was really nuts about me is that i was uh, 18 years old and i was you know i just started out in neuroscience and i was working this neuroscience lab and i was considered to be like this big prodigy and i was actually doing patch clamping and, and all this kind of very specific stuff that allows you to see how cells talk to each other And the whole time I was doing this, I was like, what I'm really interested in is what these cells think about art and what these (laughs) cells think about music. And everyone in my lab was like, no, no, no. The purpose of the brain is to make decisions and find truth because the brain is like a computational engine and it exists to take in data and store it in the memory and all this kind of stuff, you know? And I was like, actually, I think the purpose of the human brain is to create and to love and to seek, you know, I think it's all these emotions and all this kinds of stuff that, and it was not at all cool to talk about these things in a neuroscience lab at that time. And even when you talked about them, you had to talk about them in very logical ways. You know, you had to be like, well, this helps our evolutionary success, you know, in these ways or those ways, you know? Um, And I was like, no. And so basically I, you know, I had this amazing training in neuroscience, had these amazing opportunities in neuroscience and I just left to go study Shakespeare um, and, you know, I'm off studying Shakespeare and, and everyone in the neuroscience lab is like, what are you doing? And then I get this, you know, degree in Shakespeare and, you know, I'm, and I'm off at Stanford. And then the next thing you know, I'm like hanging out with Pixar. And everyone in the Shakespeare department is like, what are you doing with Pixar? And I'm like, I don't know, but I just know that somehow these things are all created because they're all connected because they're all about creativity and the human brain is creative and Shakespeare is creative and Pixar is creative. And, and I just want to figure out what's going into at the bottom of it. And so, you know, I think so many of us get, misdirected from our personal journeys by by this sense of like oh i can't do that or you know i'm never going to make any money or there's also just a lot of embarrassment i mean i know you know i work i work a lot with you know for example you know special forces or something like that and there's like there's a kind of team psychology among humans and if your parents sacrifice to get you to college or whatever, you don't like to be wasting your college degree by like wandering around and doing nothing, you know what I mean? Um, and so we always have this sense of obligation, you know, to others, and that a lot of times limits us. Um, and, you know, I just thought to myself at some point, it's like, you know, you go back in my family tree, all those people gave a gift forward because they wanted me to do what they couldn't do. And, you know, I have this opportunity to do this totally nutty thing, which is combine neuroscience and art, and I'm just going to do it out of, you know, as a way of honoring the people in my family tree, even though probably none of them would have understood it and they would have all thought it was nuts, you know, in the same way that I want my kids, 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 kids to do something that I don't understand, um, but to take that risk um, and to seize that opportunity. So I think a lot of it is just about us getting in our own way with our own anxieties, our own desire to please others, our own desire not to seem a failure, but you just got to have the guts to say, this is my journey and eventually I'll reach the end. And when I reach there, it'll matter a lot to me and hopefully it will matter to at least three or four other people too.
1: Yeah. And that made me think, and I wonder if you've had like an experience like this. So when I was a kid and even still now, like, especially at my age, right. It's kind of corny to like professional wrestling. So even though I don't follow, right. And you could kind of see where this is going. So even though I don't follow it as much as I used to, I still love it. Right. Like I will listen to all of like the old pod, old, it's, they're not old, technically the podcasts with like the older guys, like Jeff Jarrett, who we've had on our podcast, uh, Diamond Dallas Page, who we've had on our podcast. And like, I love these guys. Right. And people are like, ah, like, why do you, that's like, that's, that's corny. That's fake. Right. So the thing is if, you're, if you would allow yourself to see what value it can actually provide you. So here's what it's done for me, right? So I'm both a writer. I'm obviously, a, well, not both. Well, I'm a writer, or therapist, right? And we do this podcast, right? Professional wrestling promos have actually helped me become a better speaker, right? So the reason why is because like they talk with such like brashness and such confidence that you can kind of take it and you could obviously dial it down a bit. And when you present, you know, yourself to the world and podcasting, you could take some of those things that you heard and you could say, OK, how can I kind of maneuver and sort of navigate this in a way that's sort of presentable for podcast listeners, right? Obviously, I'm not going to cut a promo on air, right? That's absurd. But the thing is, when you look at it in terms of creativity, storytelling, right? So storytelling from wrestling has helped me become a writer, and then um, sort of uh, cutting promos or like, you know, speaking on the mic or whatever, it's helped me become a better podcaster. But you would never think that this thing that's considered to be so like, you know, counterculture and corny and sort of silly, right, would be so helpful to you professionally. But those podcasts that I still listen to, man, so not only... a again, have they helped me with podcasting, they've even helped me with my business. If you listen to uh, the My World podcast with Jeff Jarrett, and he'll tell you how like businesses, how businesses the territories were run back in the day. And you know, he would tell you, well, you know, you always have to think about the long term payoff, as opposed to like short term kind of like pops and getting like audience, uh, sort of like audience, like members or like just listeners coming in, and maybe peering in or maybe peeking in and being a part of it for like a couple of seconds. You know, that's not what you're looking for, right? You should be asking yourself, what's the long term gain. So the point there is, is that you could take something that's so kind of disparate and so different from what you're doing and you can actually find ways, these new ways to apply it to whatever you're doing now that may be a little bit more culturally acceptable than the thing that you're founding it on. So I love that idea.
2: Hmm. Yeah, and I'll just go out there and say it. I'm not a wrestling fan, but I think wrestling's pretty culturally acceptable. I think there's a lot of people who like it and dig it. I think it's pretty cool. And I think it's cool for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's cool. You have these like you have these characters, you have these storylines, right. um, and you just also have this collision of... of you know, this kind of like hyper um, strength kind of, you know, violence, brutality, kind of like animal thing going on with the fact that it's playful, ironic, ridiculous, absurd. And there's something about it, which I think really, really taps into something that is, you know, really core to us as humans, which is this idea to kind of get back in touch with that kind of primal fight, but at the same time, not actually hurt any. Right. You know, and, and to have that feeling of struggle and intensity, um, but at the same time, have it be theatrical. Yeah. And I don't see any fundamental difference. I'm probably going to get fired from my department for this, but I don't see any fundamental difference between professional wrestling and Shakespeare. I love um, that. <laughs> I mean, it's just a giant theatrical conflict right. and, you know, storylines and characters. And I think it's wonderful. And yeah, absolutely. Even more importantly, with these experiences is what they teach you about yourself. Right. Because I mean what what, what Professor Wrestling is saying to you is, you know, this is really in some way key and core to you, some part of your deep brain. So something we haven't talked about, but I think is important to talk about is, you know, even though it's BS that we only use 10% of our brains, it is not BS that probably, you know, only around maybe 10 or 15 or maybe even 5% of our brain is conscious. So, you know, we're really aware of very little that's actually going on inside our own heads. Um, and, you know, you, once, you, once you point that out, of course, it becomes obvious that none of us know, you know, how our brains are, are operating our kidneys or operating our hearts or any this kind of these kinds of, there's like a huge amount of stuff in there. But you also see this anytime you work with anyone who's like a surgeon, you know, a surgeon will have these amazingly deft hand maneuvers that he'll use. to kind of, And then if he tries to explain to somebody else how he moved his hands in those ways, he, he won't be able to because all mm-hmm. that knowledge is kind of stored in these deep centers of his brain. Um, if you ever meet anyone who's like a talented actor, it's the same way. They can't actually explain to you how they act. They just do it. Why? Because all that knowledge is in there. A great writer. How did you do that? I don't know. It just kind of came to me. Well, it didn't just come to you. It was part of your brain, did it? And that's because consciousness is like this tiny, narrow, little searchlight that only illuminates very, very small parts of our brain. And we think consciousness really evolved a lot of it to mediate conflicts in lower regions of our brain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it allows us to kind of step back and figure out, oh, you know, one part of me wants to go this way. Another part wants me to go that way. Let me step back. And, you know, then I have self-awareness and so on and so forth. But all the deep work is being done by all this stuff deep in your brain. And that's why. When you have an intuition that something is right for you, there's probably like a huge chunk of your brain that has a really good reason for why it's a good thing for you, but it just can't explain it to you because it's not conscious right now. And so a lot of being a smart, evolved human is learning to trust your emotions, not completely, obviously, but, you know, just seeing where they go, learning to kind of trust your instincts and your intuitions. Um, And, you know, if you have an intuition that some kind of, you know, music or, you know, art or sports or something that everyone else around you thinks is corny or campy is actually really cool. It might actually be really cool because, like I said, that 85% of your brain and maybe even that 90 and 95% of your brain, depending on how you calculate it, is smarter than the 5% logical part of your brain um, that all your friends are using to judge you.
0: <laughs> no, totally. Uh, and in fact, there are times I, I used to have a problem with this where I would be by myself thinking about things I would want to talk about on a particular podcast and because I'm not in conversation th- for some reason my access to certain knowledge is just it's not there when I'm by myself mm-hmm. I, it's hard to lead myself down a pathway where I can sort of shine a light on information that I've definitely studied before but for some reason won't come out until I'm actually in conversation or there's a purpose sort of asking for that information to be sussed out and I've uh, As you're saying, you know, you have to trust yourself. I'm working on it for sure, but I've gotten better with that Mm -hmm. because that that used to be a huge problem. Like, why can't I remember these things I've studied? I've definitely studied this for hours. And then all of a sudden I'm talking to someone and it comes out Mm -hmm. magically, Mm -hmm. you know.
2: Isn't it amazing how much smarter we are in conversation with other people? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean the number of times that you i mean obviously in this conversation we're saying all sorts of things and you know you're probably thinking oh angus has had these ideas before and he's just repeating them to us and it's like no i'm actually having these ideas for the first time and i'm having them because we're talking about them And i'm sure vice versa i mean yeah. that's exactly right that process of conversation allows these other parts of your brain to kind of hop in and make you smarter whereas if you just sit there the entire time in your conscious brain like thinking hard it's just like it's like it's like you're using only really this tiny tiny little part of your brain and you know, famously people will talk ideas out to themselves as you've ever written. Anytime you write, you immediately have ideas that you wouldn't have had if you hadn't written because the writing is that process of kind of getting your deep machinery moving. So these are all ways of not trusting your emotions or intuitions in the sense of blindly trusting them, but trusting them in the sense of saying, let me see where you go. Let me at least follow where you go. Let me not shut you down too early. Let me see if there is something positive here. And again it's that sense of openness that i think we were talking about earlier we've really lost a lot in our day and age i mean we've become so intolerant in so many different ways but it's just like you know part of it is we shut down other people's ideas and we judge them we're like oh i don't even want to talk to you you disagree with me on some points you're useless but we also direct that on ourselves all the time and we're constantly shutting down our own processes and judging our own processes and rejecting our own processes Mm And I do think a lot of that has to do with the way our culture and our educational systems work nowadays, because, you know, we live in schools that encourage us to think there are right answers and wrong answers. There's like multiple choice. You can find the right multiple choice answer. You know, you have a teacher and the teacher will tell you how good or how bad something is. And so we're all constantly trained to think that there is right and wrong ways of doing things. And that makes us anxious. And if we don't know what the right way is, we think we must be wrong. And, you know, the reality of life is there aren't really right and wrong ways of doing things. I mean, if you look out in nature, (laughs) there's not a single animal in nature that's worried about right and wrong. You know, they're just messing around and trying stuff, you know. And nature as a whole has no concept of right and wrong. Nature is simply just trying new things. It's all about diversity um, and then seeing which things work. And so you just get a lot further in life if you just relax, try stuff, and particularly try new stuff. You know, anytime your brain is doing something new or weird or unique, instead of shutting it down and judging it, be like, all right, maybe I'll go with this pro wrestling thing. It seems a little odd and unlike me, but, you know, there's got to be a reason for it because it's different. And then, you know, you go down that path and then surprises happen. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, you have like a million people listening to your podcast.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So like for me, I would say pro wrestling has helped me, you know, in this obviously particular context adapt, right? In the sense of becoming a better public speaker. So I could look at it and I could say, well, you know, because I I was kind of like, uh, like as a kid, I would sort of practice like cutting these promos. And so our other friend, uh, with Mike Feely, we have like this kind of joke that like when we talk to each other, it's like we're cutting wrestling promos. So we've had like a ton of practice with this, right? So it's like that sort of story has helped me adapt to this particular environment, right? Where I could say, okay, I can look at wrestling promos and I could say, this is how I could become a better podcaster, right? Again, with some sort of like a kind of adaptation because it's not exactly a cutting a promo, obviously, because that's just over the top, and a little bit absurd. So that's not exactly what I do, but because I can do that right now, I think about it in terms of storytelling. And would you say that that's the purpose of storytelling, that it evolves in order to help us adapt to particular contexts and environments that we find ourselves in?
2: Bingo. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, the whole point is that, you know, life presents you with unexpected opportunities and unexpected challenges. And you've got to figure out a way to seize those opportunities and get over those challenges, you know. And the way you do that is you tell yourself a plan or a plot or a story. Um, and story is, of course, also wonderful in the kind of context you're talking about it as a way of getting groups to work together. Because if you can find a common narrative that links together a lot of different things that everyone in the group wants to do, then all of a sudden you've got this whole group moving in the same direction. And, you know, that's why effective leaders are usually pretty good at figuring out a story that kind of aligns with where everyone else wants to go. And, you know, in our modern world, I think we've lost that because basically politics has devolved into two groups yelling at each other. And so all we ever do now is choose which story is less bad. So we're like, hmm, this group is presenting this story, and this group is presenting this story, which story is less bad for me? But in effective leadership situations, if you're running a company or a school or anything, it doesn't work like that. You don't, have, you don't choose between two like not great options. You wait until someone comes up with something that actually links together the entire group and gives them a shared purpose that you can all buy into. And so great storytellers have that ability to be audience-driven. And this is another reason why, you know, I depart a bit from Joseph Campbell is because Joseph Campbell has this idea that ultimately storytelling is driven by the storyteller. And the mm-hmm. storyteller has just got to make this perfect story. And then somehow everyone will give them money for it. Whereas in my view, story is an experiment. It's trying something to see if it works. It's trying a plan or a plot. And in an experiment, you need feedback. Right. You need something to tell you that it's working or not working. Well, in the case of story, that's your audience. And so to be a good storyteller, you have to learn very quickly and very sensitively to your audience and see how are they responding to this story. And, you know, in earlier eras of human history, all storytelling was literally oral. So you'd have like a group of six people looking at you and you could tell very quickly if they were bored or if they weren't. And over time, we've gotten more and more distant from our audience as novels and media technology. I mean, you guys don't know who's going to listen to this until it's released. You know, they're not actually listening right now. And so you have to develop these kind of higher levels and more sensitive ways of listening. But the more you do that and the more you can hear your audience, you can start to hear them before they even respond. And that's when you become a really effective storyteller because you just know this story is going to work for my audience because I've been with them for so long. I know what they need. And I know this story is going to connect with where they are and take them somewhere that they want to go but haven't been yet. And that's really the magic of story, is to take people on a journey that they want to go, but haven't walked before. Um, and that all, I think, is developed by listening, as opposed to finding a perfect formula.
0: Mm-hmm. Are, uh, sorry, are these the, the sorts of stories that you... Um... Translate to uh, like in your work with the military. Essentially, are these the ideas that you're sort of translating to them, or or is there something else that you're also sort of conveying to them that's that's helpful to them?
2: Yeah, so I do a lot of different work with the military, but the the main thing that I'm sort of known for now is writing the new field guide to creativity, which I wrote for the Army's Command and General Staff College and has now moved over into special operations. And the basic idea there behind creativity is creativity is coming up with original plans, plots, actions, strategies. Mm-hmm. And so creativity at its core is basically being an innovative storyteller. And this is what you really need if you're in a fast changing dynamic environment as a leader, as you would be for example uh heading a kind of special forces team or if you're commanding a brigade or something like that, is you're in an environment everything's changing really fast. And you have to figure out what plan, what plot, what strategy do I come up with? And so we work a lot with helping them listen to the environments and open themselves to the present. Because the main problem that most people get into when they're in a kind of chaotic environment is they panic. And they either like try and run away from the environment or just solve the problem as fast as they can by coming up with something that they've tried before. And you will always know an effective leader because you'll see them in a moment of chaos. (laughs) Everything around them is a mess and they will be very calm in the chaos and see an opportunity and move towards it. And then afterwards, everyone will say, oh, they're so brilliant. How did they know just the right answer? Well, they didn't know just the right answer. There were probably 85 right answers in that situation. There's lots of things that can work in almost any situation. You know, Any battle can be won 10, 100, 1,000 different ways. But mm-hmm. the key is to find one thing that will work and move in it faster than anyone else. Um, and so a lot of what I work with the military on is being calm, activating the creative circuits of your brain, and then being aggressive and not overthinking it. And once you've got something to push hard with it, uh, because that will then stimulate a response from your environment. And if it's not working, you can then react fast again, but if it is working, you can push harder. And so much of life is just having the confidence just to try something, because you know that if it doesn't work, you can come up with something else, as opposed to just sitting back and trying to find the perfect answer and just waiting and pausing and freaking yourself out and getting over anxious because you think, oh, only the perfect answer will work. That's not true. It's usually the case that the faster answer is better, as long as it's just barely adequate.
1: Yeah, and you're also respected more if you're willing to just submit your flubs and mistakes and to say like, hey, I tried this thing, here's my reasoning behind it, and it just didn't work out. Also, yeah.
0: uh, I would imagine that, um, I mean, uh, beyond, I'm sure we've definitely evolved beyond the 33 strategies of war and Sun Tzu, of course. So, yeah. Even but, though it's a great book. No, no, of cool. course, but I, I imagine that probably someone you know, who is not being an effective leader might resort to certain strategies that they've reviewed before or that have worked in the past. But I'm guessing somebody who would be employing the level of thought that you're conveying is they wouldn't just a- apply those old styles of information. Maybe they would see some kind of a some kind of intuitive answer based on the context of the situation and make a sort of snap judgment uh, while being calm and. That that sort of thing. I'm just trying to imagine what they how yeah. they might employ this. Yeah.
2: Well, first of all, Sun Tzu is still red in the military today, and the military ha- the military has this almost impossible double directive. I mean, the first thing that they're being told is like, don't screw up. <laughs> don't accidentally kill anybody. Don't get anything wrong. And you know, because of that, they are regulated so heavily, and they are so watched, and they have so many standard operating procedures. And they all live in a state of near heart attack of making an error. I mean, think about it. You've got your finger on the nuclear button. You don't want to get creative when your finger's on the nuclear button and start like, go, So on the one hand, you know, the military is, by necessity, highly compliant highly focused on rules, regulation, doing exactly what you did yesterday. But on the other hand, the paradox is, is the military is sent to try and solve problems that no one else can solve. Hmm. And, you know, the classic example of that problem is, of course, war. But increasingly, our militaries are sent off to solve all sorts of other problems that we can't solve, you know, peacekeeping, failed states, all these kinds of things. It's like, we don't know how to solve that. Let's just send the military. And so the military, on the one hand, is constantly being drilled to, you know, follow orders follow standard operating procedures, don't think creatively. But on the other hand, they're in these situations where they have to think creatively. They Mm -hmm. have to think aggressively because there's no answer. There's no blueprint. And so what I do is I go in and I work with them and I say, both of those are possible at the same time. Because all you have to do is you just have to identify whether this is a situation that calls for compliance and following the rules or it's a situation that calls for creativity. And Mm -hmm. you have to develop a fast toggle in your brain to recognize the different signs of those situations and move quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you're going through, you know, if you're the commander of a nuclear submarine, your uh, nuclear launch protocols, that is not a case for creativity. That's not when you want to do it. But if you've just dropped in, uh, you know, the middle of the Ukraine and all of a sudden, you know, a whole group of enemy combatants have shown up in the opposite place for where your briefing told them they were supposed to be, that is a moment for creativity, because if you follow the plans, you're, you're toast. So mm-hmm. the big thing is just letting people know that a lot of life isn't about a choice or you don't have to choose in advance. You don't have to have like a perfect plan. You, you should just go in with two plans and know that you could go this way or that way, depending on the situation um, and not feel like you have to be limited to always following the rules or always being creative, because there's just the opportunity to go back and forth. And and, and and in all parts of our life, there's the opportunity to be different people in different contexts.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so do you think that the best stories are inspirational? And if so, then why?
2: <laughs> well, I think that the best stories have to be inspirational to a certain extent or else no one's going to listen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, so the at the very least, the stories have to inspire you <laughs> if you're <coughs> going to tell yourself a story. And if they <laughs> inspire an audience, so much the better, you know, because you yeah. get this kind of, you know, broader... But I think your deeper point there is that stories are ultimately less about right and wrong and true and false than they are about possibility and could be and can you imagine? And you know, the root of inspiration, you know, inspire, is this sense of thinking about something that hasn't happened before, seeing mm-hmm. something beyond the norm, beyond the kind of existing state of affairs. And so absolutely, I think there's a visionary quality to great stories where they allow you to see a possible future A future that isn't the future that exists now, but could be. And that's what kind of activates our emotions, our imagination, and everything else that gets us running forward.
1: Yeah, and the thing that it makes me think of is like uh, the Rocky Balboa movies, obviously, and then going back to professional wrestling, like the character of Stone Cold Steve Austin. So it seems like why these stories were so inspirational was not because they showed you what, like, let's say this person was able to do, which was obviously great because both of them are underdogs, but because of the fact that all of us identify with them in some way, right? Like here's Stone Cold, who's like this every guy, right? Who's like, yeah, I hate my boss, I want to kind of beat the shit out of him, right? And I'm sort of better than him, and I'm smarter than him, and I have better ideas for like this company than he ever will. And then you have some like who's a rocky balboa who's like this sort of a diamond in the rough that kind of has to be discovered but legitimately he's also like every single other person right i think everybody who's seen rocky has a little bit or to some extent like identified with him so i think that that's a part of those inspirations right or a part of uh being inspirational the fact that you kind of identify with the character and you could think oh maybe if i did some of these things that i could at least get close to where this person did
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, Rocky, by the way, is one of the movies. I mean, I love Rocky. I can yeah. never watch the movie. It's so inspiring. Um, yeah. And I actually boxed for a while very, very badly, partly <laughs> as, a, as an homage to, uh, to, to Rocky. And mm-hmm. absolutely. I mean, the, the whole point of a movie like that is to say you could do this, too. This isn't like a superhero that's doing this. This is something that you could do. These are behaviors that you could adopt yourself. And you can have, because at the end of the day, really, I mean, when you talk about someone like Rocky, it's courage, it's guts, you know, um, it's hard work. It's a kind of sense of honesty with himself and with the people around him. I mean, these are all behaviors that we can imitate. We can all do those things. And if we do those things, we ourselves will have our championship fight and we'll get our moment in the sun where we get to test ourselves. And I think the great thing about that movie is it basically says to you, it doesn't really matter whether you win or lose the fight. What matters is you get in the fight in the first place and you fight your fight. And if you have the courage to live your own way, at some point, you will have a very big fight ahead of you because out there, most people aren't living that way. And you'll find that collision point. And can you keep having the courage to calmly, confidently, and, you know, within the ropes, you know, within the rules of the game, fight your fight. And I, I love that movie and will always love that movie.
1: Yeah, going the distance, man. That's what matters. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and are, I wanted to, of course, I want to respect your time. I do feel that energy like you want to sort of go towards. True, God, I was just curious. Um, so I, I do see that you did story consulting for projects for Sony, Disney, so on Amazon. Um, are you able to talk about any of the projects that you might have worked on that maybe pe- uh, people are you know, uh, aware of? Or uh, is that something you're allowed to talk about? Because I'm, really, I'm curious, like what kind of projects you... Uh, worked on with them. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I can talk, I can talk generally. I mean, I have to sign NDAs for almost all the consulting work that I do. Um, Uh And so, you know, the kind of specs of it, but basically I get brought in a lot of the time when um, a story is broken and Mm -hmm. no one knows how to fix it exactly. And they just know it's a good story. I mean, a kind of obvious example would be this novel. It's a great novel and we're turning it into a movie and everyone hates the movie. (laughs) Why Mm -hmm. does everyone hate the movie when everyone likes the novel? And usually the answer is because screenwriters are trained today that there's a formula for a movie, and so when they get a novel, they just take the novel and they force it into the formula. Um, and then it all just comes out like every other movie you've ever seen before, and it loses its charm, its distinctness, its special voice. And you know the whole thing about a story is every story has something about it that's special and different or unique, or else you wouldn't take it off the shelf. You would just leave it there because you'd already read it before. And so a big part of my method is to emphasize the unique and find ways to get the unique to work with the story by changing the story, making the story unique. Because the way that I think about audiences is not that they want the same story every time, they just wanna be hooked at the beginning and then led through a series of transitions to an ending that's satisfying. Mm-hmm. and that story structure can go in a circle it can go in loops it can go in a straight line it can go for it can go any direction you want and so i get brought in a lot to kind of help on projects like that to just to kind of fix them or or mm-hmm. rethink them and in the same way i get brought in by a lot of companies because a lot of companies lose their way at some point either because they get so successful they have no idea what to do with themselves anymore or mm-hmm. because they're struggling and they're kind of hitting their heads on some ceiling you know and i usually come in and i say look the main reason you guys are having a problem is because you've lost your narrative. You know, you had a very clear narrative, which made you successful for a long time. And then you got successful. And then like a lot of successful people, you just forgot who you were and started chasing all this other random stuff. So you're just buying all these other companies you're doing other, go back to your core narrative. Where's that leading you invest in that. Or if you're still trying to be successful, what's unique about you? Don't be chasing everyone else. Find out your unique path, your unique uh, uh, story, your unique journey through life and have the courage to stick with that, because what's successful today is not the same as what's going to be successful tomorrow. So just trust that tomorrow is coming and trust that you'll eventually break through. And when tomorrow arrives, everyone's going to be knocking on your door. So it's a lot of that kind of work. It's always about what's unique, what's special, what's distinct, as opposed to me having some universal formula. And the reason I get hired uh, for the stuff that I do get hired is because they've tried everybody else, you know, Mm -hmm. because nobody wants to come to me. Because if you come to me, my answer is I don't have the slightest idea because there aren't any formulas and absolute answers. We're going to have to figure it out as we go along. So it's it's a slower answer to talk to me. Um, But usually people, when they come to me, they realize the kind of value of thinking that with that kind of particularity. Um, And so I've been fortunate that I keep getting referred for more jobs um, Mm -hmm. because it works.
1: Wow. That really reminds me of my work as a therapist. Cause like sometimes you would get a client who will come in and it'll say something like, okay, like I want to not maybe I don't want to be fixed, but it's something along those lines, right? And not those words. And then you'll tell them, like, hey, man, I can't really do that for you, right? It's not what therapy is. It's not like going to a doctor, you get some sort of prescription and then you walk away and then you know three weeks later you're cured, right? So I would kind of tell them, like, look, if you're willing to go on this journey with me, let's do it. Let's try to make it happen and we'll try our best, right? To you know get you to wherever you want to go, wherever that even is, because we don't even know from the first session but we'll try our best. Right. Some people hate that. Some people will hate that. And they'll say, no, I want like somebody who knows what they're doing. I'm like, okay, sure. If that's, if you think that exists, you know, go find that. Right. But oftentimes what you'll have is you'll have somebody who really appreciates you sticking in the sort of uncertainty and the ambiguity with them. And I love that you do that too, man. It's very similar. Yeah,
2: it's exactly the same thing. And really that's the real expertise. Cause what you're saying to them is, I'm not going to give you a cheap answer that I just sold to the last person that I'm going to sell to the next person. I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to work hard to actually hear what's different about you and help you in that different way. And of course, if someone comes into your office and you immediately recognize what's happening because you've seen a lot of other you know, situations that are similar, of course, you're going to give them a fast answer and see if it works. I mean, I'm not there to make it unnecessarily complicated, but I assume that by the time that people reach me, they've tried a lot of fast answers already. Um, you know, and so I just think you have to have the courage in life to realize that almost everything wonderful and special in this world, whether it's art or technology or science or art or anything, almost all of it came about through a unique epiphany. Someone seeing something different that no one else had seen before, not about some kind of universal formula that they just applied to the situation and cranked out an answer. Um, and you just have to say, okay, that's hard. That's hard. That takes time. It takes curiosity. It takes creativity, but I can do it. I've done it before all around this planet. Almost everyone on this earth has done something creative at some point in their life. So if I can't do it, we together as a community can find a way to do it together. So that's always the kind of spirit of optimism that keeps me going. And that's why I like uncertainty. And that's mm-hmm. why I like ambiguity because at the end of it lies discovery.
1: Yeah. Love that. Love, love, love that. All right, Alan, final questions for Angus before we wrap
0: up? Uh, yes. If we wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, where could we find you?
2: So you can just check out my website. I don't do Twitter or social media <laughs> because I don't have the bandwidth for it, but I do have a kind of archaic website. It's just angusfletcher.co. And for the time being, I'm pretty sure I'm just about the only Angus in Ohio that's even semi-famous. So you can probably mm-hmm. just type in Angus in Ohio and sort of kind of walk walk the chain.
1: Love that. Awesome. Angus, thank you so much thank for coming you. on, man. This is legit. One of my favorite podcasts.
2: Thank you guys. This has been such a fun afternoon. Um, and really anytime.
1: Yeah, absolutely, man. So we'll, t- we'll talk to you soon. And uh, you know, it's been, again, great having you on. Thank Perfect.
0: you. Uh, take care. Bye. All right. So uh, by the way, I wanted to say, I, I didn't even want to say it to him, but <laughs> I to say it to you right now, I think this is my favorite podcast. Nice. My number one. Number one. Yeah. I think number one. Yeah, it's close to it's close to being it's up between there number one and number two. Yeah, yeah. But I can't remember who number two is. So it's number <laughs> one right now. But anyway, guys, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at seize the moment podcast on Facebook and on Instagram, as well as TikTok, and seize underscore podcast on, <clears throat> on <something>. Twitter. On <laughs> Twitter. Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit, them hit them the bell guys thanks again so much for watching again the book is called wonderworks the 25 most powerful inventions in the history of literature you can find on amazon your local retailer buy the book and again thanks for watching see you next